Hello, and welcome to CQ Speaks, the voice of the Carolina Quarterly. I'm Colin DeKesheter, poetry editor of the Carolina Quarterly, and today I'm joined by poet and musician Alexandria Hall to discuss her debut book, Field Music, selected by Rosanna Warren as a 2019 winner of the National Poetry Series. Hey, Alexandria, welcome. Hi, Colin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so judging by that tone, I'm just going to divulge at the top, um, that we're friends. We met at NYU through the MFA program about five years later or six years. I don't really know. You read some heart crane at my wedding, which was beautiful. Mm. All that to say that I have some familiarity with earlier iterations of some of the poems in this collection, but reading them and holding them as a book and as an object has really brought more light to my, my understanding and appreciation of your work. And what really struck me right from the beginning is the strength and consistency of a kind of idiom that's developed. Mm. And I don't really mean like diction or a dialect. There's emphasis on like Vermont accents and things like that in the book. But I was more struck by your use of rephrasing or maybe the way that you turn phrases on their heads. At the surface, it's like kind of a playfulness with language. But as a rhetorical device, it feels like it goes far beyond that. And I'm really interested in like the act of misreading while reading. And a lot of the poems felt like acts of sort of mishearing or like strong misreadings of the world and you say it on art that if you say it wrong it might be better and so the idea of saying it wrong or of telling it slant to use dickinson's phrase seems to come from the act of mishearing you say in the in the titular poem field music my mom says ancient like ancient and every time i hear egg shells or ankle shins can you speak a little bit about what exactness might mean to you in your poetry or in your creative process, or maybe what inexactitude might mean? Absolutely. First of all, it was just really great to hear you say that stuff because it felt good. And I think that you put really well what I was kind of trying to do with a lot of that stuff. One thing that comes to mind is the idea of language as the material that you're working with in terms of sonic material. So within a lot of those slippages and mishearings, there's the making apparent the closeness, the sonic relationships between words that are actually pretty, you know, far apart from each other. And also the kind of possibilities that those relationships open up. I think those are always kind of hanging together in thought. They're so close to each other that they kind of do end up having a relationship to each other. And it's just not always logical, but it can be intuitive. There's a poem where I talk about mishearing the phrase make ends meet and mm -hmm. hearing it as meat as in like a roast or something. And just how you can misunderstand, misperceive, mishear things and build your understanding of the world from that or around that. And that can be through the language, but also through the image or the event. There's another moment in the poem, Heirloom where as a child, they plant a stone in the sandbox and the next mm. day there's a full-grown tomato plant there and it turns out it's my father's prank. But the idea is that I think I say something like you have to misplace expectation to receive the world. So for me, a lot of the exactitude or inexactitude, a lot of the mishearing <laughs> comes from play, a sort of playfulness that I've always enjoyed with kind of the music of language and the stuff that that opens up, but also I'm interested in just this way that we can and also just kind of always are existing in this very inexact and not totally focused place. <laughs> yeah, it's making me um, 
think about what metaphor does, and I guess metaphor is performing that kind of inexactitude, right? Juliet is not the sun, but she is. And you have a lot of really great metaphors. One that I think of is the park split open like a fish in the morning and just the coldness and the world spilling out into the world. But these things feel different than metaphors. They're literal like transmogrifications of, of language that in turn alter one's relationship to the poem if that makes sense totally it it, it acts like metaphor but it's more it's more like free association but exact free association maybe we should clue our listeners into a little bit what we're talking about (laughs) one of my favorite poems and one of the poems that i think does it really well is on art the first on art (laughs) do you mind reading that sure on art art is nice it is very very nice In her lifetime, my grandmother painted dozens of pictures, copies of scenic postcards or images of yawning puppies in boots. These boots are made for walking. These shit kickers. Oh, these? Just a little old something I had lying around. My grandmother was a little old something, too. She had a scary scarcely. Lips opened like a chicken with a broken beak when she sold her pictures to the folks at the country kitchen diner. Why, oh why? Was it art for Pete's sake? Art is pretty. It is only just or it is almost not. Because it is old like my grandmother and valiant like these boots, it has a must. I mean, it is an odor and an ought. It has a little pink tongue. What's the difference between a big blunder and a little diddle? I did a very bad thing. Verily, I say underwear. Poetry is unsafe. I commit this violence to shape it with words. If I say it wrong, it might be better. I apologize for all my gross ejaculations. Shame, shame, shame. Rilke says to a young poet that things aren't so sayable happens where words haven't. It is very virginal. Betreten meaning to enter. Betreten meaning embarrassed. Abashedly, I push these words into. Words like marshmallows, words like clogged pores. Oh, my mom, I am heartily sorry for having this tendency. I would like to show you something other than this sick deformity. Unfortunately, you'll have to look under this cover here. Stick your head in the casket. Fine, just put your hand out. It was a terrible thing to do. Oh, my head, I am heartily sorry. Oh, my heart, my achy, breaky heart. Art is beautiful. What is beautiful is true. When the imagination seizes it, you should never put a spoon in its mouth. It is nice to be stirred, but alarming to be shaken. You shook me all night long. I said shake, rattle, and roll. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is a false alarm. This is a downright lie. Beautiful. Thank you. I love the line, she had a scary scarcely, because its logic is built almost entirely on on sound, but despite that, a meaning still seeps through. This might be a tougher example of how the kind of um, idiom that I'm talking about manifests, but by the time we get to this poem, I think this type of sense making is is learned by the reader. But regardless of that, it's just it's so bold and it's so willing to to be itself and be unabashed about 
standing for something and it's willing to just yeah be sort of exact and inexact all at once because um because i don't know what it means (laughs) 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 but i love it uh and it's really really bold but i also love it for what you mentioned like the logic of transitions that are happening it feels very very natural but the main thing that i love (laughs) this is going to be you know this is what this is going to be right me just telling you (laughs) um no it's just really entertaining and fun. Yeah. Rilke is here explicitly and, and Keats is in it uh, more implicitly. But we also have on a poem so boldly titled On Art, The Yawning Puppies in Boots. These boots are made for walking is, who is that? Nancy That's Sinatra. Just, yeah, okay. And then Achy Breaky Heart. And these references are like little breaths of fresh air for me because you it makes you sort of smile. <laughs> And in a poem whose edges are sad or, or I guess, uh, is dealing with shame, I should say, and that's also dealing with art and maybe specifically poetry and dealing with it in a subtle but but sophisticated manner, I think that that's a bit of a rare thing. You know, there's that slippage of the word must. It, it has an odor and an ought, which is probably my favorite sort of uh, etymological game in the book. But there's also the slippage of the German betreten, and listeners who don't have the book uh, won't know that a word is alighted in that stanza. So, so we have a, a blank space on the page, as in blank happens when words haven't. Anyway, the poem is open to some to some serious work if if that's where the reader wants to take it. But it's also engaging directly with the idea of art as entertainment. So it seems to be dealing with with the value of poetry as a potential form of popular entertainment. And well, we don't need to talk about accessibility. I think your poetry is at once very accessible and very scary, scarcely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll just say that. But this might be kind of a played out question, but maybe it's more pertinent to you since you have a background in music and performance. Do you think of a readership or or an audience when you write? Do you write with like any intention to to entertain? I think I'm... If I'm entertaining someone, first and foremost, it's myself. One thing I've realized since the book coming out and like talking about the book is just how much my love of playing with language comes from having, you know, seen and heard my dad play with language when I was a kid and just like make up weird little language game songs and stuff. So I think I'm kind of engaging in some sort of silly release of energy in a way for myself Mm. but I'm also trying to communicate something that I guess moving through the language and the way that you've been talking about is a way of trying to express something intuitively and thoughtfully you know I think I'm engaging with things intellectually in this book and in this poem but also just kind of being led through those ideas in a way that's you know, not totally constrained by saying something that makes sense at face value or something. So I think I am trying to communicate something which implies an audience. And I'm trying to, I guess, perform it in a way, in the way that it, I mean, not in my actual reading of it, but like, you know, in mm-hmm. in the articulation of it on the page. So I think, yeah, there's this implied audience that I'm entertaining in a way, but I'm I'm never really thinking, well, I don't want to say never, but I'm I'm not usually thinking about, you know, those listening at home, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I find it hard to believe that people would be, although there are those instances where you're writing kind of to someone, whether it be like a writer that you're kind of engaging with, or, you know, you want to say something to someone, you know, and yeah. it just comes out on the page. But in general, I think it's sort of a 
talking to yourself kind of thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. In this poem, another thing, the, the issue of, of shame or being abashed and being abashed with respect to writing poetry makes me think of Seamus Heaney's Clearances. Do you know that sonnet sequence to his mother? And he has yeah, that because one... you recommended it to me. Listeners at home, Colin was <laughs> actually the only person, I think, who saw the manuscript before I started sending it out places. And one of his <laughs> notes to me was that I should check out Seamus Heaney's clearances. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of, of shame and language and diction is at the center of Heaney's sonnet sequence to his mother. And your poetry deals pretty explicitly at moments with sort of the burden, or not burden, but the, the task, let's say, of having a poetic disposition and, and being intimate. And you don't talk about this explicitly, I don't think, but writers have a certain shame about uh, constantly co-opting the language and the emotions of those close to us. And you obviously also pay homage to your upbringing a lot to the sounds, the fields, the vernaculars, um, the play of your father, which you mentioned, and all of that's lent itself to this poetical disposition. Sorry, I'm using such highfalutin language with that. But once again, yeah, the, the title poem, Field Music, is doing a ton of that work. But I guess what I'm asking is, given your concern with this subject of shame around being, let's say, poetical around your family of sort of sharing in what you call a sick deformity in on art, what was it like to learn that the manuscript was going to be available to, to them and to the world? There was some worry, never until it was like, oh, the book is actually going to be published. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, yeah, like, yikes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there was also like worry in terms of like, OK, this is a book that I worked on for years and it's, you know, kind of a reflection of who I've been for the better part of a decade. And that's so mm. embarrassing, <laughs> you know, that it's just like. <laughs> here's what I've been thinking about for a long time. Yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely felt some shame and embarrassment on that end too. <laughs> <laughs> that might've felt like a little bit of a non sequitur, but I'm always curious about um, just how different writers or artists sort of deal with their, yeah, life's work coming to the surface. But to get back to the work itself, you mentioned the articulation of the poem on the page. And I actually did want to ask you about form a little bit. It didn't seem like an accident that your two poems titled On Art and one poem titled On Beauty are really big things to tackle, obviously. But for these poems in particular, or I guess just in general, why the prose form? Is it a approachability thing? or? So I was thinking a lot about yeah, art and aesthetics and cultural capital and social whatever, all that stuff. And I was thinking through them in these ways that I thought was a little bit rebellious because I was talking about the puppies and boots and like <laughs> saying scary scarcely or whatever. And I guess I thought like, oh, they're little essays. And so for me, it just seemed like they were my little rebellious prose poem essays. And saying that out loud, I feel a little silly, but that's kind of, I think, what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think there, there's a way that the music is is leading it, especially in on art. And I think... Mm -hmm. I think it's fun if something's particularly musical to put it in a prose block. I was curious because your forms are very mannered and shapely, but a lot of the time the poems are sort of dealing with a kind of fluidity. Um, I was going to say airiness, and there is an airiness in the sense that there's like an ethereality to them, but they're not, they're airy and heavy at once somehow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking I want uh, mannered and shapely to be on my on my gravestone. <laughs> we can make that happen. Um, yeah. I was wondering if a wet pool noodle is mannered and shapely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it's the, in terms of the fluidity, things are filling or emptying or seeping, or and there's this this kind of these boundaries are constantly breaking down. And the title of your book, Field Music, obviously lends itself to this kind of dialectic that that's happening. Um, <laughs> wanted to say what a, such a good title, damn you. Um, no, but the the sort of sort of the shifting between the groundedness of the field and the ethereality of music um is is really deft and and most good poetry does both keats's to autumn felt like it was kind of a specter a little bit Ooh, um yeah. but i do feel like poets tend to live either in the head or in the body or in the earth that might be reductive but in any event was there sort of a striving <laughs> when you were writing the poems to strike this sort of balance you do between the field and music or groundedness and metaphysics or larger abstract ideas? That's a good question. The thing is, I feel like I'm very much a kind of concrete person in a way. Like, you know, if there's a theory, I like it to be grounded in something. If, you know, I, I'm really attracted to concrete image, but I'm also not very grounded myself. <laughs> and hmm. I feel like my experience of things is often really like airy is you know i think a good word that you use like <laughs> kind of dissolute so i think when i'm writing i'm really drawn to those concrete images but what i'm trying to express is usually something that's not quite so grounded so i mean i definitely when it comes to things that are like embodied or whatever i definitely strove to place myself or place you know a speaker who is embodied within the world sometimes mm -hmm. because it's not always readily available to me in my mind but yeah i think the fields for instance they're always there like if something's so focused on a place or landscape you can just always even if you're kind of floating away from whatever is happening mm -hmm. the field is still there and i think the music too so they kind of balance each other out i was lucky <laughs> that those two were there <laughs> yeah what you're saying is making me think about one poem and particular especially with respect to sort of floating in and being grounded by concrete images at the same time um would you mind reading on the uh sorry in the nets okay <laughs> <laughs> on the nose <laughs> on the note on the nose. <laughs> that's good in the nets on the coast i saw nets and lacking a good sense of boundaries, I saw myself made mostly of holes, myself a boundary for the washed through, the held. Could this not be about capture? After lunch, the man I loved told his mother all the ways she'd failed him. I tried to stick to my business of the slipped by and the built up, tried to disappear from the table, fiddled with a salt stung cut, watched the beach where a row of baby girls like new birds were planted with their toes outstretched to feel the water rush and recede, the young father clowning around them dizzily. I've been failed too. It pours out at inopportune moments. I pitied the timid beach dog, her cracked and sandy teeth. I want to be full with the way things move through me, I want to be a mother again, porous, stretched in place by the floats and weights. Thank you. So 
you mentioned being sort of airy, but at the same time interested in the concrete image. And I wanted to have you read this poem because I think it sort of exemplifies that the Nent is something sort of airy or porous, but it's meant to hold and capture. And there seems to be a real connection throughout the book between intimacy and capture, like even in, on art, when the speaker wants to be vulnerable for a moment, they ask the other to stick their head under the covers or in a casket. And I think all that does a really good job of showing how much intimacy is related to boundaries. But what I want to say is that the porousness of the subject here of the poem and the speaker gives readers a real sense of intimacy with the work. And I don't think it's just because I know you that I feel so let in through the pores, but I'm really curious about sort of the other side of things. And I'm realizing that I'm just getting into a place where I'm just asking what it's like to be Alexandria Hall. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you think a poetic disposition, let's say, lends itself or, or doesn't lend itself to intimacy with others or with the world more generally? Does that make sense? I think so. I yeah. I and this think... might be too personal. You can just, or this might be just one of those go go by the book moments. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I think I mean it's kind of making me think of the romantic tendency to kind of animate nature for the purpose of the lyric subject. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about that, but like, okay, but what if? both the subject and the nature are like made out of mesh <laughs> and there's just something kind of pouring through both of them. Mm. I think this sense of not having boundaries or trying super hard to have boundaries as it comes up through the book, it's a sense of seeing things happening in the world and being alarmed by them. Mm -hmm. What you're saying makes me think about Keats and negative capability, but more about being the chameleon poet. Mm -hmm. But you get the sense, I think, a little bit with Keats that he believes that he has like an ability to turn it on and off. Mm -hmm. And in the book, Field Music, there's being undone by abundance. There's a sense of too muchness, but the overwhelming nature of the world, it's abundance and too muchness is also the thing that's sort of creating the poems, right? Yeah, the sense of overwhelm is very much on a personal note, um, <laughs> <laughs> something that I struggle with. I feel like, yeah, I just get very easily overwhelmed and very overstimulated or whatever. So I don't think I have an off switch. So I have to kind of retreat into my space and take mm. that time for myself. And then I can be stony, which I need to be sometimes. But also, yeah, sometimes there's this desire in the book and in the person <laughs> to just be completely like destroyed and devastated by all of the abundance to just kind of wipe out all of those boundaries and just kind of be flooded by the world. And I think, yeah, it's just kind of like rushing out into the world and being inspired and overwhelmed <laughs> and then kind of like retreating back under a little rock. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, th I don't know. I think probably having boundaries with the world and being a little stonier is um, <laughs> the healthier way to be. <laughs> so do you tend to compose in large chunks of time, like where you're absorbing the world and then you and then you hunker down and compose? Or do you do things slowly or at a pace? Or I'm what's very, your composition process like? Very irregular. <laughs> 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 so uh, yeah, like definitely long periods of time of not writing and then bursts where it's like everything I wrote is just amazing and I love it and then some of those kind of chunkier it's mm -hmm. okay but I'm not sure about it times too yeah I know a little bit about the process of the composition of the book but 
it took you, what would you say overall? So long. Seven, <laughs> <laughs> seven years, maybe. Yeah, wow. And I was just like kind of chugging along. I mean, you saw me. Yeah. <laughs> the poems that are seven, now we're just chatting. The poems that, that are seven years old, how much editing did they undergo? Usually, I tend not to go back to something old and work on it too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge editor in general. So it either comes out relatively close to what it's going to be like in the end, or it comes out as like a not great draft and then will totally be done over (laughs) in some kind of, you know, salvaging it later. But yeah, so when I kind of decided the book was done and, and had it all put together, it was more of like a tinkering with little things and just mm-hmm. deciding what poems belonged and what didn't and the ordering of it and stuff. Yeah. Interesting that something can take seven years because if you think of who you were seven years ago, if I think of the poems I was writing seven years ago, they wouldn't be caught dead in a manuscript that I would hope <laughs> to send out anytime soon. And so there's no, like, I don't think a way of tracing any sort of personal poetic development in the manuscript which feels kind of rare usually you can like spot a juvenilia quote-unquote poem Mm -hmm. but everything just kind of rings so can i ask what the oldest poem is oh yeah (laughs) do you know i love these questions they're very fun uh i think (laughs) so the oldest poems i'm not sure which one is the oldest oldest but they would be field music syrinx and smoke i think Mm. are like the ones that i'm thinking are the oldest oh wow and they're all right there near the front of the book yeah. field music is obviously the titular poem do you think that you wrote that poem and you were like damn and then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. and then you were like i'm gonna lock into this sort of direction and it carried you through or what carried you aesthetically i think i think that's a good question it was definitely something where i wrote it and i was like that felt so good <laughs> you know <laughs> that really said it and it was like this is what has been interesting me and this is what's been on my mind and it's like when you do something and then you actually see the result of it and you're like that's that's what it looks like um Mm -hmm. like all that energy that i had now it has a direction you know so it wasn't like oh i'm just going to write a bunch of poems that are like this but it was like this embodies a certain number of the concerns that i've been thinking about that have just kind of been like hovering around in the background and so yeah yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say any two poems are are alike. Although the the themes of the book, some of which we've been discussing, keep rearing their heads and rearing their heads really strongly even across the two sections. And this may be too much of a technical question, but I was actually curious about why you chose to divide the book into two sections. And maybe this is just another one of those go buy the damn book moments and you don't need to talk about it. I think it's it's fun to talk about. So, um <laughs> Because I don't know, but I kind of had this intuitive sense that it was two sections. And I did a lot of playing with the ordering of it. And, you know, sometimes it was more sections, sometimes it was less sections, like sometimes it didn't have sections. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But ultimately what ended up happening is I kind of had this two section thing happening and I found these correspondences between poems in the first section and poems in the second section I kind of split them up like that and I went through this period of being really rigid about having that kind of correspondence from section one to section two Mm -hmm. but then I didn't like that so then I like 
messed it up just a little bit, but then they kind of hung out where they wanted to be, I felt like. So it wasn't so much of like a, the first section represents this and the second section right. another thing, but just a kind of relationship between the two sections. Right. And I, and I think that relationship really comes through. So we really only have time for one more question, but I wanted to give readers a heads up that Alexandria will be seeing us out with one more poem. So stay tuned for that. So Alexandria, I know your book only just came out in October, but knowing you, I'm sure you're already working on something new. And I know that you're a PhD candidate in English and creative writing at USC. So will your dissertation be your next project or just generally what are you working on? Yeah. So we're supposed to do like a half and half critical Hmm. and creative dissertation. And right now I'm working on what will hopefully be a new collection of poems. I'm also working on a collection of short stories, which is scary because I don't know what I'm doing, but um, (laughs) and they all center kind of around different ideas of actually, I'm not going to I'm not even going to say because it's too silly. (laughs) I doubt it's silly. (laughs) Alexandria was like, I'm going to try writing a short story. And I was like, "Okay, go for it. And then like three weeks later, it was published. (laughs) (laughs) So I cut it. So fun. I'm sure that I'm sure that um, whatever avenue you're going with respect to the short story isn't silly. So go tell talk about it. Okay, well, so it's like different ideas of the end of the world, but I don't just mean like apocalypse. It could also be like basically anywhere that you want to take that. And it's I think mm-hmm. I mean sometimes it is silly intentionally, <laughs> and it's also been a good outlet for some of my more neurotic <laughs> like thinking so that's fun but also scary and so yeah and then what will hopefully be a new collection of poems and yeah in terms of like critical stuff I'm kind of trying to figure out what I'm doing there but my focuses have been on well lately on sound studies and humor and laughter Hmm. Mm -hmm. more entertainment yeah (laughs) (laughs) It's not silly at all. It's a huge subject. And I know that there's been sort of a transition more in contemporary poetry towards uh, the notion of joy. Not and... for me. <laughs> this is like very dark humor. <laughs> well, that's what, I was, that's what I was going to say is that, yeah, there's joy, but then there's also laughter. And the things that we laugh at aren't always necessarily joyous subjects. And I think that, I think that that's in field music, like in that poem, One Art. There's a lot of shame and anxiety around poetry or choosing that vocation or whatever it means but it's also funny <laughs> totally <laughs> like, yeah it's funny because you said one art i think god damn one it. Art. <laughs> I, i've done that like it's that's the active misreading that, that i'm sort of talking about i do that all the time i look at it and i see one art well i love that all because the time bishops in the book and i was just reading jillian white's lyric shame because i was doing this project on elizabeth bishop and there was something that she called the intersubjectivity of language which is for her this idea of using very impersonal language to talk about personal things and especially regarding on art i was thinking about that and Mm -hmm. yeah so that's great (laughs) sorry i didn't mean to i just no no no. i was going to try and connect the art of losing to um to your poem on art but i'm not going to start free associating we could go there (laughs) (laughs) 
as much as listeners would probably love to hear that, um, we're unfortunately out of time. So it's time to wrap up before we hear one last poem from you. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me. It's really been nice. And I really, really enjoyed reading and rereading your book. And listeners and readers and all of us really look forward to any of your projects that are coming out. And we will keep our eyes peeled for your poems as they as they slowly enter the world. Or quickly, rather. <laughs> Thank you, Colin, and thanks, everybody. (laughs) All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Alexandria Hall joining me from California to discuss her book, Field Music, published in October 2020 by Echo Press and available wherever you buy books. Alexandria's work can also be found in the Yale Review, the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly, Narrative, Boat, the Bennington Review, and elsewhere. Here's Alexandria reading one more poem for us. Slumber Party. The string of lights by the shade gives two silhouettes away, two bodies, or the bodies are two shadow puppets at a junior high school slumber party. When the girls snap their fingers, the shadows are dancing. When they clap, it means they're fighting. When they pull back my hair and say I'd make the prettiest boy, I feel pride like the meat of a peach with a cold pit. One girl points down the night at Hospital Creek, where the ghosts are. One girl knows how to walk in heels. I know the American goldfinch has a contact call birders liken to singing, potato chip. I'm here. Where are you? I've become pretty well acquainted with the firmness of a grip, at least how I imagine it from the image on the blinds. When the two shadows touch, a clinking sound. When one girl steps away, all the other girls hide, and, returning, I'm as soft as a dropped apple rolled into the center of the empty room. Test one, two, testing one, two. Are you there? Potato chip? They're twisted up laughing. I don't laugh. I watch one last shadow. This one looks like a tree being felled. When the girls shake with laughter, A rainy breeze slaps through the leaves. When they sleep, the tree is chopped down into firewood. When they leave in the morning, branches scrape the window. Two pale fingers part the blinds. Thank you for listening to CQ Speaks. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com and follow us on Instagram at carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at NC underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen and be on the lookout for our upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.